to be with you this morning. It's always a pleasure to be here. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read all of Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to uh, look at this passage together by God's grace. The title of the sermon this morning is Christ Our Heavenly Minister. Christ our heavenly minister. This is God's most holy, inerrant, infallible word. It's God's word to us this morning as his people. As we... Come to the word, let us uh, hear the word of the Lord, let's heed the word of the Lord, and let's pray uh, for the illumination of the Holy Spirit before we read. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you're the transcendent God, you're the eternal God, you're the God who is high and lofty and lifted up, but also with the one who dwells, with he who is lowly and humble in heart, who trembles at your word. We thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for your word made flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly minister. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we come to the Father this morning through you, boldly through your mediation. We thank you that you're our prophet, priest, and king, and we pray particularly as our prophet, you would speak to us uh, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that as our king, you would subdue our hearts further to yourself, that as our priest, you would continue to pray for us and cause our hearts to soar and to be blessed by you, our dear Savior and God. We ask, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would help your servant, that he would decrease, that you would increase, that we would be transformed. And as we read your word, as we hear it preached, we pray that you'd open our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, and our minds to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word from Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Beloved, we, hear, we have here in this quotation from Jeremiah, right toward the end, the summary of God's gospel to his people throughout the Bible, both in the Old Covenant as well as the New. And it is this, that I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. As we come to the Father this morning through worship, we're reminded of Christ, that it's through Christ's mediation. It's because Christ is at God's right hand as our heavenly minister that we can approach the Father in worship and in delight and in praise and that we can receive from him, that we can be changed by him, that we can grow in our trust and our faith in him. And so the author of Hebrews points our attention to Christ, our heavenly minister, in this passage. In the beginning, he, he begins in verse 1 by saying the point of what we are saying is this. We always appreciate when a pastor knows the main idea and can point our attention to that main idea at times in the sermon. In this inspired sermon, the author, the inspired author, is now telling us what his main point is. And he says this in verse 1, The point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent or tabernacle or sanctuary that the Lord has set up, not man. Now, if you remember, the author of Hebrews earlier in chapter 4, verse 14, has told us that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And he's told us much about Jesus as our high priest in the, in the last few chapters. Now he brings us back full circle. He says, this is my point. Jesus is our high priest. He is our heavenly minister. Now, before we go further, let's stop for a moment. Because when I say to you this, we have a great high priest. Maybe some of you, 
maybe you young children, maybe some who are new to the Christian faith, maybe some who have walked with the Lord for a long time need to be reminded, what is a high priest? Why should that cause my heart to exult and to rejoice? What was a high priest? What does he have in his mind? When you think of high priest, when you're reading the Bible, think this. God wants to have a relationship with me. And because he's thrice holy and most perfect and I'm a sinner, he provides a high priest to mediate that relationship. So when you think of high priest, you think one that's chosen and appointed by God. One who wears glory clothes, beautiful clothes, outward garments in the Old Testament, a a crown that said holy to the Lord. He wore the people's names on his garment. And he matched the heavenly tabernacle. He was to look like a cosmic man. A man from another world. A man that God had provided for God's people to come into his presence. God wants to have a relationship with you whenever you see high priest. And more particularly, what did the high priest do? He offered a representation for worship. The people, both young and old, families could come into the thrice holy God's presence and worship him. And they could bring sacrifices, substitutionary sacrifices. They could bring blood and the high priest would take it and he would take it into the throne room on earth, the holy of holies. And he would offer it in place of the people so that they could be forgiven. And he would then bring a great blessing out to the people of God. And he would bless them in the triune name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He'd bring blessing. So high priest, relationship. High priest, worship. High priest, the forgiveness of sins. High priest, one who blesses. Well, to the people he's writing to who have begun to follow Jesus They know at this time there is still a temple. And there's still sacrifices taking place. And there's still a high priest who's serving. But they've been told, they've been taught to follow Jesus. That Jesus is their true and faithful high priest who's fulfilled everything in the old. That the old has passed away, it's become obsolete. And now they have beheld and embraced the new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. The new has come. Things have become obsolete from the past. And he, his family, are under persecution. They're struggling. They're suffering. They can't see Jesus. They want to and are tempted to run back into the arms of the high priest that they can see and feel and hear. They want to run back to the tabernacle, the temple that they're familiar with. And the author of the Hebrews says, no, you're not without a high priest. You're not without a tabernacle temple. You're not without the relationship to God. You're not without the worship of God. You're not without the forgiveness of sins and the sacrifice that's been made once and for all with you. You're not without the blessing. No, something great has happened. Your high priest is in heaven, and he's enthroned at God's right hand. And all the high priests before were just pointing forward in history and upward to the time when he would come 
and he came. And he now presently ministers at God's right hand as the priest king. Now I'm going to ask you a theological question. Young people especially, think about this one. Where is Jesus? Where is he? Because the important application of this passage is to know where he's at. Now you might answer, well, he's God, so he's everywhere present. Good. Ding, ding, ding. You'd get that one. Now you may then ask, well, he lives in my heart. Okay, he's filled you with his Holy Spirit. That's how I'd say that. And so, yes, he lives, he's, he's filled you. Ding, 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 you got it. But it's most important while holding these two things in balance to also emphasize he is at God's right hand. And he's at God's right hand in our nature, glorified. Not merely wearing glory clothes for beauty and glory. Not merely wearing uh, an outward garment, but enthroned in glory in our nature. And the author of Hebrews throughout has been pointing us to this high priest. Don't look back. Don't look again at just the high priests who've come before. Look at what they were, who they were pointing forward and upward to. Look at Jesus Early in the passage, he starts out running. The, the sermon takes off hot. In chapter 1, he said, In the old days, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to, to us through a son. Now, I want you to understand who this son is, the one he's spoken to, the one he's spoken through to us, the one who is the high priest. Who is he? He's the appointed heir of all things. He's the one through whom he made the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his image. He's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. And after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on heaven. And this was all according to God's promises, particularly his promises in Psalms 2 and 110. That said, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And you are a priest forever ever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so now we come back full circle, and I say to you, we have a high priest. We have a minister in the heavenly places. And young and old, we want to rejoice because this high priest is Jesus. And there's very specific things to think about when we think about Jesus as our high priest at God's right hand, the one who sat down, is he emphasizes that he is the enthroned king. That he's the one who sat down, that is, he was enthroned. His perfect work of salvation was accomplished. He was received by the Father through resurrection and then ascension and then enthronement, coronation. He lives in glory. And he rules and reigns over heaven and earth. But he seems so far away sometimes. You see, that's what he told us we'd be tempted with. It's as little like the families we're experiencing here. Mm, we don't see him. And sometimes we don't feel him. When Jesus left, he said, remember, I go to prepare a place for you. I will return. And I will send you my Holy Spirit. 
But it's most useful, most helpful for us to meditate on the fact that our heavenly minister is at God's right hand in our nature. And he's ruling and reigning over heaven and earth now. We don't see it fully. Not all sin, the devil, the the hardships, the tribulations, not all of those things have been put under his feet. Not all the wicked have submitted to him as king of kings and lord of lords. Not yet, but he is the sovereign king. And further, as that sovereign minister in the heavenly places, he sympathizes with us. The author earlier said that he's been tempted in every way as we have been, as we are, yet without sin, so that he identifies with us. Though the transcendent God incarnate, he is the God who dwells with us. He's the God who ministers from heaven to us. He's the God who is sovereign, who's Lord over all, and who's the one who sympathizes. And beloved, he's the one who very specifically, he didn't shed the blood merely of bulls and goats and lambs. He shed his own precious blood for you to be our savior. And so when you think about our heavenly minister. You may think of all the wonderful things about the earthly ministers that you've had, that you have, and you can pray for them and encourage them and thank God for them. But ultimately, any good, any glimpse of grace you see through any of the earthly ministers Jesus provides is to show you a glimpse, to leak forth the true and living heavenly minister that is yours at God's right hand, as the priest king. And you can remember this day by day, especially when you don't feel him, especially when you don't see him, especially in dark times and circumstances. Remember, he's the sovereign, sympathetic savior. The sovereign, sympathetic savior. And so Jesus Christ ministers as our high priest as sovereign, sympathetic Savior. But let's go back to the question, where is this particular place of ministry? Yes, in a sense, he's everywhere present. He is everywhere present. On the other hand, he's also present by his Spirit, okay, with us particularly. But we want to not uh, lose focus on the fact that the Bible says here in this passage, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent or tabernacle, or some translated sanctuary, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Now, beloved, very quickly, what is this true tent where Jesus is in our nature, ministering as our sovereign, sympathetic Savior? Well, we know it's the right hand of God. We know it's a heavenly throne room because we're shown that in the book of Revelation. In other places, we have glimpses, like in Isaiah 6. At the end of Hebrews, we're told that we come to a worship service already in progress, that we come to Jesus ruling and reigning over Mount Zion and to perfected saints and to innumerable angels. So it's a place. And here's where our mind sometimes slips into heresy. The heavenly throne room of God is not God. It's a created place. It's what we would call another dimension. And so 
when God was wanting to show the Israelites as children under age in the Old Covenant what his heavenly throne room looked like, he made a Lego. He, he, he did a model, a building kit. He made a copy. And so he said, make it according to the pattern you see on the mountain. Exactly. Why was that so important? Well, very importantly, God must be worshipped as God desires to be worshipped. But it's more than that. It is that what Moses was getting the blueprint for was a model of heaven. Further, it was the very model of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, this says here that it's... He's a minister now in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle the Lord set up and not man. And if you look at verse 5, he says they serve, the, the serving on the earth in the earthly tabernacle, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now think about it for a moment here. A copy is not the original. A copy is not the true. But a copy is a representation of the true. A shadow If my child sees the shadow on a sunny day, they don't run and embrace the shadow, but they follow the shadow to the real, to the substance. They come and hug me. And so the old covenant tabernacle, the tent, the sanctuary, was the way God provided in the old covenant a copy of the original. This is... This kind of stuff might blow our minds because it was original from eternity past. You could say it was the first thing God created before he created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens. He created the place where his throne was in heaven. And sometimes we limit that heavens part to just mean the skies and and this part of creation. But think about it more fully from scripture. He's created the heavens. A throne room. A place where his redemptive story will be worked out and his son, after becoming man and fulfilling all righteousness, will return in glory to be enthroned there. And so what Moses is getting a copy of, what Moses is granted a shadow of, is just merely a type. Now children, let's talk about types for a moment in the Old Covenant. I think types are important. They're all through the scriptures. And types might be hard to explain. So let's do it like this. You ready? A type... It's kind of like a noun. It's a person, place, or thing that points, well, it's appointed by God, and it points beyond itself forward in God's good story and upward to Jesus Christ. So a type would be a person, place, or thing. A person, the high priest in the Old Covenant, or the Aaronic priesthood. A place, the tabernacle, the tent. A thing, A substitutionary sacrifice, a lamb, a bull, an offering. All of those things are persons, places, and things that point forward. They're appointed by God and point forward and upward to the Lord Jesus. So what we're being told here is that our heavenly minister is in that original place that was just patterned on the mountain. And so the author of Hebrews wants to say, we've moved beyond the old covenant Uh, children under age stage and we've come to the time of fulfillment we've moved beyond promise and now we're at fullness and fulfillment with the coming of Christ and he's saying let that capture your imagination so here here's a very useful I think it's useful application to me when thinking of the old covenant in Exodus chapters 25 to 40 
there's a lot of chapters just on the making of the tabernacle. How can you use that very practically now in light of this passage? You can take it piece by piece and see God's glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you can realize that's why Exodus, Exodus was doing so good with such an adventure story and a freedom from slavery and, and, and then the, the, the covenant at Sinai and, oh, and then it just slows to a halt in chapter 25. What happened? I, 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 I'm sure that sometimes it's hard for you to say, let's have devotion time and it, it, let's turn to Exodus and find out about the priestly garments or find out about the furniture of the tabernacle. May we never think that way again. Because this is telling us that's where Jesus, our Savior, our sovereign, sympathetic Savior, that's where he ministers right now. And that's the place in another dimension that we will one day be. But for now, we access it. Through his mediation, by his spirit, as we come to worship. And as we come by faith. Let me, let me take this apart for a moment and just think about it. When you're thinking about the tabernacle, think about the bronze altar outside that says there must be an offering on behalf of your sins. And then the next step is the, the laver, the water, the cleansing that happens through the blood of Jesus, through the blood, the substitutionary offering. And then you go into the holy place and on the right side or the north side, the bread of life. The bread, the manna from heaven is there. And Jesus says, remember, when, they said, when he said, I'm the bread of life, what did he say? He said, and they said, Moses gave us manna from heaven. Will you do the same? And he said, Moses didn't give you the, here it is, true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven comes down to do God's will. There you have it. On the right, the bread is the bread of life. That's Jesus. That's God's provision for all of our needs, but ultimately our provision for a Savior, the bread of life. On the left, in the south side, what do you see? But a light, a lampstand constantly burning, constantly burning to remind us that the oil is like the Holy Spirit. It's one full of the Spirit. It's like a tree. Why? It's the tree of life. It's Jesus in a picture form. It's what he gives us in the fullness of the Spirit, in the fullness of time. And then if you remember, there was something really neat that the high priest would do. He'd go back out to where the sacrifices were offered and the coal would have the blood on it. The blood that took away sin or the blood that represented the taking away of sin, I should say more particularly. And he would take that hot coal with some tongs and then he would take it to the golden altar right before the Holy of Holies. And it would cause a cloud of smoke. It would cause an aroma, a fragrant offering. It would be ascending up to the nostrils of God. So there was a connection between that sacrifice outside and the sacrifice here showing this ascension. Earlier, the author of Hebrews, what did he say? We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Passed through the heavens in his ascension, but passed through the heavens like the incense in the original tabernacle. That when lit with the hot coal, ascended to heaven as prayers to a holy God. And then... We go through the curtain, and it's torn because the expiration date on that temple, on that tabernacle, on that Old Testament tent was the cross. And on the cross, when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he completes his full work of redemption. What does he do at that time? 
He gives up his spirit willingly, lovingly, entrusting the Father with his spirit as he dies. No one took his life from him. He laid down his life his own accord because he loves us. And what does it do? Immediately the curtain of the temple was rent in two. And the author of Hebrews says that's his flesh. That's representative of his flesh. And then going through the torn curtain into the Holy of Holies, there's the throne room. There's the place where your sovereign, sympathetic Savior didn't bring the blood of bulls and goats. He brought his own blood. And after his ascension into heaven, after his resurrection and ascension, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That ark represented that throne, that footstool of God. And that is where your heavenly minister is located right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet he's always with us by his spirit. He's always ministering by his spirit. That's where he's located. Not only do I find that to be most encouraging for my heart to be lifted up to see the person and work of Christ in chapters 25 to 40 of Exodus, but to see Christ in his fullness writ mysteriously, but yet fully in a sense in the old covenant. And beloved, this is a great way to think about every day about your need, about my need. And even use it as an evangelistic tool. Sounds strange. But when you're thinking about the grace of the Lord Jesus as your heavenly minister, think about each day the gospel by walking through the tabernacle. And think about it as an evangelistic presentation even. You're stunned. You're, you're kind of stumped for words. Well, think about the bronze altar. There must be a sacrifice. No man can approach any further. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Then there's cleansing that's promised through this offering. Then there's bread. There's life given. There's the tree of life that every man wants, that only God can give, that only we can possess in Christ. <laughs> there's the prayers of, our, of God's people. There's the ascension of Christ. There's the flesh of Christ. And then there's the throne room where every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. It's so powerful. It's so exciting to think about that Jesus is not in the copy made with hands. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing, and what I'm trying to do through lisping, is to say we have a great high priest. Christ, as a heavenly minister, as a sovereign, sympathetic savior who serves in this heavenly tabernacle not made with hands, that was set up, notice what it says, that it was set up by God, not by man. It was fully accomplished by God, not by man. And so it shows that perfect person and work of Jesus as he ministers in this heavenly tabernacle. I think it also helps us to have location. So that we know that though we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, we can now have much more of an image or a picture to capture our hearts and our imaginations as to where Jesus is, most particularly as our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author is stressing this throughout the book. He's stressing how much superior Christ and his work is to the Old Covenant.
You see, at the end of the passage, he reminds us of what he's saying. He's saying, in speaking of the new covenant where all this fullness has been revealed, when the work of Christ has been accomplished, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to be vanished, ready to vanished away. Now, I would say this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, when he's contrasting the Old and the New Covenant. And what does he say? But he's using this imagery of Moses on the mount, receiving the law, receiving the pattern for the copy, not the true tent, the copy of the true tent, the shadow of the true tent. And he's coming down the mountain, and as he comes down, the glory that Moses had on his face is fading. And the Apostle Paul says that even as he's coming down, the Old Testament is passing away. The Old Covenant is passing away. And so that's what the author is saying, that this Old Covenant way of doing things was for children underage. It was for a church underage. It was drawing pictures. But the reality has come in the Lord Jesus. And the reason why it's such a better covenant, one... (laughs) It has Christ who's superior than the angels, Christ who's superior than Moses, Christ who's superior over Joshua. The rest that Christ has entered into is superior to that. Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood because he holds his priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. But we're taught that, that it is better because the promises were kept. Now, Let's be reminded, in the Old Covenant, in the time of Moses at Sinai, when the people met with God, right before he gave them all the uh, information, all the, 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 revealed the blueprint for this copy, what happened in chapters 19 and 24 of, Mo, of, of Exodus? Israel made a covenant with God. Moses sprinkled the tabernacle. He read the covenant. He told them the demands of God and what God demanded of them. And they said, all these things we will do. Now, we don't want to forget that the covenant of grace in history began with God's promised Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And then it was more fully revealed in the time of Abraham. Then it was more fully revealed in the time of David. And then it comes to full fruition in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Thus it's called new. The time of Moses was a time that's still in that time of the covenant of grace. We don't want to lose track. We don't want to lose focus of that. But this covenant, we're told, God found fault with. Now, he purposed and planned it. But notice what he says in verse 6 of this passage. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What we're being taught there is nothing that God does is at fault. But what he's emphasizing is that this Work, this old covenant, this time of Moses that he's highlighting was only meant to be temporary. It was meant to grow obsolete, to pass away, to expire with the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, the expiration date, if you want one, 
of this temple tabernacle, of the high priesthood, of uh, the, the sacrificial system of the old covenant, would be first with the cross, with the death of Christ, and then more fully in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so there was this anticipation that the promises of the new covenant would be met. That the promises that Israel made would not be kept. And here's the good news, beloved. God will dwell with his people. God will be the God of his people. God will be our God and we will be his people. God will come. And what happened? In the fullness of time. The, the, the beloved son of God was the word made flesh. And he came in our nature to tabernacle in our midst. As the final Adam. To keep God's covenant. To be faithful to God through promise on our behalf. To come as the, the, the king, the, the faithful Israelite. Who would be faithful to those words that were uttered on that day. All these things we will do for all of believing Israel. He came to keep promises. And that's why the new covenant is so much better. It's based on Christ's full work. And it's based on the fullness of his keeping the promises of God on our behalf. And what does that mean? It means this. This is very good news. As Christ ministers from the heavenly place to us, we can come boldly into the throne room, into the presence of the triune God. We can come boldly through Christ, our sovereign, sympathetic Savior, and know that there's no more need for sacrifices. That He has laid down His life and shed His precious blood once and for all, for all of our sins. That there's no need for an earthly priesthood, though God is very pleased, Jesus is very pleased to use ministers and use earthly ministers who are faithful to His word Nevertheless, there's an ultimate focus on Christ. There's a focus on Christ and how he's kept all of God's promises on our behalf. Where we've promised God and failed. Where the Israelites promised God and failed. Where sinners have promised God and failed. Jesus has kept his promises. He's the true promise keeper. He's the true one who upholds all the promises of God. And all of God's promises are yes to us. We're forgiven. We're cleansed. We're given the bread of life. We're uh, united to that life of the tree through the spirit of God, through the true tree of life. We're the ones who can enter in even into the throne room and find not a throne room of condemnation, but of grace. We can find a smiling Savior seated on the throne. And because the new covenant is new, not in the sense of brand new because it was part of the covenant of grace, but in the sense of new in that Christ has accomplished all righteousness for his people. Christ has come in the fullness of time to reveal and to fulfill all that the old covenant pointed forward and upward to. And that's where we can rest and be thankful. Beloved, this is what we can understand now, is that this covenant that God has established was ultimately between himself and the Son. And the Son has come, and by his 
ascension, in his enthronement of the Father, he sent forth his Spirit to write that law in our hearts, to cause us more internally to be able to know him and to commune with him and to grow in him and be transformed in him. And it's a gift not just for believing Israel. It's a gift for the world, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It always was, but it's more fully revealed as the gift of God in Christ for believing Israel and for all the believing Gentiles who will come to the Father through him in reliance upon his Holy Spirit. It's a knowing the Lord deeply and intimately. It's a remembering these beautiful words. If you've ever promised God something, you've not kept it. And you think of your sins before a thrice holy God, a perfect God, an infinitely holy God, in your words, in your thoughts, in your deeds. See Jesus, your sovereign, sympathetic Savior, at God's right hand, ministering in this heavenly place where he's fulfilled all righteousness. And listen, verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities fully and finally. I will remember their sins no more. That's the kind of Savior we have, beloved. That's the heavenly minister who ministers on our behalf. That's the one we want to know. And we can use the tabernacle as a, as a way to think meditatively on Jesus' person, on his work, on how he's then fully revealed in the new. Now, he has kept all the promises for us. Now, in him... We do make promises back to God. In Him, in reliance upon Him, we have a perfect righteous record that's been given to us, that's received by faith. We wear His perfect, glorious righteousness. And how do we respond? We respond to Him in His final sacrifice, through His precious blood, we respond saying, Lord Jesus, heavenly minister, thank you that you are our priest king, according to the order of Melchizedek. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the possibility of transformation, for the possibility of change, for the possibility of becoming more like you, for the inheritance that is heaven, that is ours because of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And I offer myself now to you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. It's my reasonable response. It's my reasonable service. It's because of your mercy. It's because of your grace. It's because of your kindness, the fullness of the righteousness you've won for us. I want to close with some, um, the question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism that always brings me great joy. And I don't know it word for word, but what I want to highlight is this. What we're taught in the forgiveness of sins, in the fullness of Christ's work for us, is we're taught that When God sees us now, beloved, he sees us as his dear children, forgiven, not shamed, not guilt, not guilty. And he looks at us with the perfect righteousness in Christ, and he sees us as those who are those as if we've kept every jot and tittle of the law, as if we've kept every one of God's commands in word and thought and deed. And as if we've never sinned, this is that wonderful good news that the author of Hebrews is putting before the, uh, the church then and us now, is that we have forgiveness. And he'll remember our sins no more, for Christ's sake. 
Because the perfect righteousness that God demands is the perfect righteousness he's provided for all believers in Christ. First to Israel and then to the world, all who will believe. And that righteousness is perfect, it's spotless, it's pure, it's clean, it's acceptable. And so we offer ourselves back to him out of gratitude and thanksgiving for all he's done for us. Because, beloved, (laughs) the point of what I'm saying is this. We have a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up and not man. And he continues to minister and prepare a place for us as he prepares us for that place. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we're so grateful that we have Christ, our heavenly minister. And we're grateful for all of your kindness and the mercy that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for the, the, the great news of the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for what uh, was a mystery in the old covenant and yet revealed to some degree. But that wouldn't make as much sense to us until the coming of Christ. We thank you for the way that you faithfully revealed yourself throughout history, but ultimately in Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the one who is appointed heir of all things. You're the one who created the world. You're the radiance of the glory of God. You're the exact imprint of his nature. You're the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power. You're the one who has provided purification for sins, and you sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Surely we can trust you with our lives. O sovereign, sympathetic Savior. We pray these things in your name, and we're thankful and grateful for all you do for us. Amen. Amen.